Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Jack, and this week, Inika, Kanisha, Madeline, and I spoke with Sasha Simon, leader of the BIPOC Mental Health Coalition, established in May 2020 and funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. The coalition is an emerging and diverse group of 30 youth-serving organizations across the nation and is dedicated to helping the mental health of BIPOC youth and advancing racial justice. Given the impact of COVID-19 over the past 18 months, social isolation, anxiety, depression, intergenerational trauma, and other issues have increased, and the language, desires, and experience faced by BIPOC youth have evolved. Sasha actively listens to youth for their input and learns more about the ways that intergenerational politics have stunted the mental health resources available to BIPOC youth. She reminds us, as BIPOC folks, we have probably experienced our trauma for generations, and there's a lot that needs to be unpacked. We need to speak, normalize, and seek out support. Sasha encourages us, as youth, to have a liberating and revolutionary approach to mental health advocacy. She challenged us to start a petition, find resources for our community, to make mental health matter. We're posing that same challenge to you, too. How can you make a positive change in your community around mental health? Thank you for joining us. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the Next Generation podcast, I'm also co-editor-in-chief of the NGP blog. Excited for this conversation today, especially because today was my first day of school, and it's my first day back in the building. So obviously, our whole perception of mental health has changed, especially in the education spectrum. And I'm eager to talk about what that means for the future of education and going forward as I start off my senior year. Hi, everybody. My name is Jack. I'm a junior going to high school in Manhattan. I'm a podcaster here at Next Gen Politics, and I'm also a civic fellow. Mental health and mental health issues are one of, if not the issue that I am most passionate about. I am totally fascinated. I think it's super important that we talk about this. I feel like it's a really under-discussed issue. So I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today to talk just sort of what your work is, what it looks like, and how we can increase and bolster mental health support. Hi, my name's Kanisha. I'm a rising junior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I was a facilitator with LiveOat this summer. And today I'm just really excited to talk about mental health of young people, the trends we've kind of seen in it, and how the pandemic has really shaped these trends. My school was pretty notorious. They didn't really care about students' mental health for a long time. With the crushing workload and overwhelming schedules, it became a huge problem in our school schools. And with the pandemic and with remote learning, we really saw a huge decline in a social life. And it wasn't just a trend in my school in New York, but we saw it happen all across the country. And I think it was a huge issue within itself, but it revealed a lot of issues with schools, with education, and like Jonathan was saying, with legislation as a whole in regards to young people and our mental health. So today, I'm just really excited to talk about what it's looked like in the past and how we can hopefully shape it going forward. Hi, my name is Madeline, and I'm a high school rising junior from Brooklyn, New York. And in addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a Y voter and a civic fellow. And I am, like Jack, very passionate about conversation around mental health. At the end of school year last year, I was elected onto the e-board of of my school's mental health club. And since then, I've been really, really passionate about bringing mental health to the stage. I was in the mental health YVO action group, and I produced a piece over the summer, a PBS NewsHour, about mental health in schools and how it declined. I am very excited to talk about mental health in any capacity. And I, like Inika, I'm really interested into seeing how this is going to go forward in the new school year. My name is Sasha Simon, and I co-lead emphasis 
facilitate the BIPOC Youth Mental Health Coalition that is funded by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And essentially the coalition is an emerging diverse group of about 30 or so organizations that are youth serving across the nation. And we are dedicated to meeting the mental health needs of BIPOC youth in particular, and especially as they emerge. And we think also the language and perceived need of services has evolved throughout the pandemic, especially want to hear from and be driven by the express needs and the express desires of BIPOC youth, because you guys know best what it is that you're experiencing. I think it is a novel moment. And it's also potentially a transcendent moment for us to really reconsider what is it that young people need? What is it that BIPOC youth need at this moment? And what are the intergenerational ways or the intergenerational politics that have really stunted the ability for BIPOC youth to receive the mental health services that they need? Super excited to answer any questions that you have. You spoke about the needs of BIPOC youth. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what those are? I know that a lot of my friends and also myself personally have suffered with things like depression. I think to me, I see that the biggest issue around youth mental health. Would you consider that consistent with what you're hearing on your end? That's a great question. Absolutely. Depression has definitely been a part of the conversation, but also feelings of isolation, feelings of needing to reconnect with peers in particular. But a lot of the things that are unique to BIPOC youth are policies that tend to inadvertently affect or impact BIPOC youth and their ability to seek out resources. So oftentimes we see not just the criminalization, but just also the, the kind of behavior correction in a punitive way towards BIPOC youth when it comes to needing help. In addition to that, you also have to consider what the culture is of many BIPOC youth who are, as they've had to be at home or with their families, many things about culture and seeking out mental health resources could be reinforced. But it's also, again, an opportunity to be transcendent and break what might be family values or family ideas about seeking mental health resources and what that means. We're all human. And if we as adults don't provide the space and the language to be able to speak about that and say, hey, it's okay to seek out support, then what are we really giving young folks? And beyond questioning what are we really giving young folks, again, it's such a prime opportunity for young folks, especially BIPOC young folks, to say, this is what I need. And for that to be heard and not in theory. I think that's really interesting. And something that I personally have been dealing with is what kind of help do you give to someone? What does help look like? And I've noticed that what help can be in reality is something that's very, very different for each individual. And maybe sometimes just having a conversation in itself is the answer, but sometimes it's really not. And so trying to be a leader in a community where mental health is a topic that it's not just of conversation, but it's of that everyone is experiencing. How do you resolve the problem at hand, but maybe help it? I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about what exactly does a solution look like? That's a fantastic question. It's not a one size fits all type of thing, right? So it can be difficult for one person or one leader to know how to really support many people outside of themselves and outside of themselves in terms of what it is that they need. Do you just delete the problems that caused what they're experiencing? That would be so ideal, but it doesn't change the fact that that trauma was experienced. And for BIPOC folks, it's probably been experienced for generations. So there's a lot there that needs to be unpacked, even if those generational stressors go away. The trauma is still there through our lived experiences, also through epigenetic, which has us pass that down from generation to generation and how we've adapted and coped. I think one of the realest things you can do is just to be real about it, is to speak about and normalize what you've been experiencing yourself and how you've sought out support 
so that it doesn't seem like such an isolating experience so that folks know that it's okay to speak about it. And then also nudging in certain directions where support might be, because we may not as individuals and as leaders have all the answers, but there are tons of people that do have answers. So it's about getting comfortable about seeking resources and helping other people become comfortable about seeking resources and also normalizing speaking about what's going on. I know that's not something that we've known for often doing in Bible communities, but it's what needs to happen. And especially on an intergenerational level. I think someplace all of us support this is that we see issues with mental health definitely in a sense worsen by experiences at school. Since for young people, that's a majority of where we spend our time, where we form relationships and things like that. So aside from what we can each do on a personal level, obviously schools, when it comes to BIPOC communities, the issues that we see in education with race are so hugely intersectional that it's obviously going to affect different demographics and their mental health in really disparate ways. So my question for you is just on a general level or even specifically for BIPOC communities, what changes do you think need to be made in the school environment to help better our mental health? My perspective, I, I do feel as if the, the public education system is wildly outdated in terms of the systemic support that's available to all students, definitely BIPOC youth. I think in addition to just kind of individual advocacy, I think right now is a phenomenal opportunity for aligned groups of young people. Throughout wherever you find yourself on the social strata, really speaking to what your experience has been and how and why it's not working and what you need it to be. And really communicating what the value of having your needs as they have been explicitly expressed by you, what the value of that would be to the school community. And also what the value of that would be to folks that work in your schools. Because as much as I might think the school system is outdated and a bit antiquated, folks who are working in schools right now, and especially teachers, those are committed folks. Those are folks that really care about the work that they do. But they have their hands tied in a lot of different ways that you guys as young folks don't. You guys can make changes in some very unique ways that adults just cannot. And I think it would be quite revolutionary and liberating to see young people come together and say, this is an issue and a problem for us and it just cannot continue. One example I'll give you, my previous work was in drug education and drug policy. And if you guys are familiar with the school to prison pipeline, you know that BIPOC youth tend to be the most incriminated by school drug policies and zero tolerance policies even if they're using drugs at the same exact rate. So knowing this, and also knowing if you didn't know this as well, drug use has gone up across the board since the pandemic. It would be great if we didn't have school drug policies that penalize students or further isolated students for their drug use. Instead, ask questions, gave supportive resources, instead of just saying, oh, you smoked weed on campus, you gotta go, you've interrupted the school community and you're no longer a part of the school community. So really looking at those policies that isolate young folks who truly need the most support, I think is a great place to start because in real time, just like young people need those changes to happen, adults need those changes to happen for us too. We need better support. And it, it means a lot when you are the ones to be able to advocate and to really give language to that. So it's important that you speak and that you fight battles that we didn't have the language or the fortitude or social scenario or whatever to be able to do that within. So you guys really, really do have a huge role in political and systemic change, especially within schools. So I know that like at least 
in my experience, a lot of the ways that schools and communities have been trying to at least help out with mental health for kids has been through technology. And so something that my school did is that they implemented this security software on our school issued Chromebooks that if a student searched up any concerning terms, then they would be immediately put into contact with a, a guidance counselor or something. And that sort of sparked a serious conversation of privacy and whether students should be monitored when they're looking something up or when they're trying to, whether it be research or find help or something like that, whether they should be forcibly given that kind of help. And so I'm curious as to know what your thoughts are on that, because I know that at my school, like it was a very big discussion that we had. Students were advocating against it. There was a change.org petition that was made for it, but I think the school ended up implementing it. It kind of just faded into obscurity after a while, but I'm curious as to know what you feel the role of technology is in trying to get students help and how can that be implemented in a way that doesn't seem to be obstructing anyone's right. That is super interesting and I'm not surprised by the student response to that at all. I immediately thought of all of the privacy concerns that can come up and also all the assumptions just based on keywords that can pop up about why you're looking into those things, especially in the midst of a mental health crisis. It's definitely no issue for you to look for resources for yourself. And I do think it's great that the school would want to be preemptive and make sure that they don't miss anything. No one falls through the cracks, but you could be also be looking for something on behalf of a family member, on behalf of a friend, like you said, a research project. Like I'm sure you guys do all types the research around mental health. And it doesn't mean that you immediately need supportive services from your school. I think there's a lot of assumption there. So I can understand the discomfort. There's also a bit of assumption about whether or not young folks would or could advocate for themselves if you wanted in-school resources or, or even out-of-school resources. That choice is completely taken away from you. And there is this intervention that you didn't even ask for. I do, to a large extent, see how that is also a means of control. And I don't think that young people, especially now, need to be controlled. I think that you guys need to be spoken to and listened to and given way more space to really create the solutions that you think make sense instead of them being enforced upon you. So what do you think the role of school should be? I think that Maybe Inika's school thought that they were doing the right thing, and they obviously did if they continued to implement that policy. And that's their version of mental health resources, whereas other schools may not offer any. And some students might want to reach out to their counselors, but some may feel alienated from their counselors or not want to speak with their counselors. So what do you think that school should do? Like, where's the healthy medium of how much school should interject with the lives of students? What I feel as if schools should do is really as much as they can. And again, teachers and administrators have so much that they are held accountable to and so much they have to make sure that they get through. But to the extent possible, really acknowledge the moment that it's been a lot of stress for everyone, that it would be best for this school year to go a little different than it has in previous years, not just with the option to be remote or wearing masks or whatever, you know, safety precautions are happening in that school, but really acknowledging we've been through some stuff as a society, as a global community. We've literally gone through some stuff that we can't deny. What are we going to do to make sure that we can get through this school year together as a school community? There's just so much assumption by politicians and adults and many people who've never even been in the classroom about what the problem is, assumptions of what the solution is, often also not defined by young people, often 
not defined by people within the school system. And then just creating this new structure and bureaucracy where you have to fix problems nobody asked you to. So I think that's the most important thing is to really tune into your own school community, see what's needed there and actually listen, listen to what is needed, listen to what's going to make you feel most safe. And then also really work within the broader community around the school to be able to find resources and identify resources that you guys might really like and, and methods of healing and connection that might be different than just the school counselor. There's so many reasons that should be honored and there's so many needs that need to be honored and they need to be defined by the students themselves. And I think the question has to be asked, what is going to help with your success as a student versus what is going to help us meet some metrics as a school system? But I'm curious, I'd like to turn the question back on you. What do you think the role of schools should be at this time? I have a pretty strong opinion on this. Honestly, I've like done a lot of, I guess, contemplating about it throughout the school year. But I think the role of schools is definitely they are the people that have to gauge how students are feeling and figure out what students need help with. Because when we really look at it, the DOE can start as many initiatives as they want, take on as many projects as they want, but they still won't be able to understand what the situation looks like on a school to school basis. And just within New York, there's such a difference in what each school needs. A school in one district is going to look nothing like a school in the other. A middle school is going to look nothing like a high school. So there, I think it's really the jobs of school officials to understand what does our student body need and do that through avid and clear communication with students, whether that be Google form they send out to the student body, whether that be picking a few students from every class and asking them, what could we do to help you guys better? And then figure out how to address those needs. That's where I think larger government institutions really come in. That's where schools propose or ask for funding from the DOE. So I think it really starts at the administrators getting in touch with their student bodies, because otherwise, if your own school, if your own principal, if your own teachers can't tell what students are struggling with, real change is never going to be made. If you can't do that for a couple hundred students, you're never going to be able to do that for millions across the country. I definitely want to agree with Misha. I think that that is really valuable insight that administrators ought to connect more and in a better, more mental health specific manner, because I think that that is a really big issue for students. But I think administrators, I hope that it is ignorance and not apathy. Although I do sort of get a feeling, at least at my school, I feel like it's a little bit of both. So I have confidence, at least in my school, which is not a public school, it's a Catholic school. If they put their mind to a problem, I feel like my school can solve a problem pretty well. I think that what's needed is just more acknowledgement that, hey, on par, the students at our school's mental health is not good. And I would agree with that statement. I think in general, a lot of kids' mental health, especially during the pandemic, but before even, was not that great. And so I think that if we can come to that acknowledgement, the recognition of that problem, we will generate solutions as we go. Now, how exactly you do that, I'm not sure. Like, I can't tell you exactly how you go about treating different mental health issues, but I have confidence in at least my school system, the way my school is run, to solve those problems. I think for me, when I was at my lowest points before the pandemic, being in certain classrooms was an escape. And 
there are definitely some relationships that I formed with previous teachers of mine that is really what kept me stable and I always really looked up to my teachers and for a while I really wanted to be a teacher and I think that that was such an important relationship for me especially my English teachers they were always my favorite and during the pandemic I lost all of that I had teachers that would not turn on their cameras and I never saw their face all year and how can you form a relationship with your students when their mental health is going to be depleting so much if we're in a setting like this and I'm not saying the solution is to be fully in person I am an avid advocate that there should be a remote option but I really think that teachers just really need to just make an effort to form a relationship and be open to having more casual relationship even with their students and to just take time and form circles with their students and say hey how are you doing today oh maybe we should talk about something that isn't pre-calculus today because maybe taking pre-calc a b every day is going to be detrimental to how you're feeling over the weekend it seems so simple but i feel like if implemented well if the simple thing can be implemented well it will go so far and students can actually feel at home in their classrooms and i think not to sound kumbaya but i feel like everything would just be so much better. I completely agree with that. And you know, it's really awesome to hear that you had such awesome connections with your teachers. It's disappointing to hear that they were disrupted during the pandemic. And that's been the case for many people. Something I do want to highlight, and it's referring back to an earlier point that Jonathan made, is that a lot of schools actually are very good at fixing problems. In my opinion, I feel like the field of teaching and education figured that out quicker than anybody else. They figured out how to go remote, how to make all their lesson plans available online. And even teachers who didn't have the experience with remote learning, they figured it out as quickly as they could. Definitely, I didn't take school last year. I wasn't, I didn't do too much online learning, but let me know if I'm wrong. I felt like they made those shifts as immediate as possible. I remember in New York City, there was a bit of stalling about whether or not the schools would even be closed or not. And I taught in the New York City school system. So I have friends there and they're having to wait and hear and waiting for the email that they think might come the morning right before school starts whether or not they're going to be there in person and they're scared for their own safety and for their families and they're still figuring it out constantly so I completely agree with the idea that schools can figure out problems and they can adapt when necessary pretty easily but I am curious about how we make it easier for schools and for teachers to be able to do that I turn on the news and I see all these folks screaming at teachers and school board members who they want to do their jobs and be safe doing it and follow the best science available to be able to do that. But apparently there are some folks who feel as if they are our servants and they should do whatever we say un under any circumstances. And so I'm wondering how we can make just the learning and school community, at least within the larger nation, how can we make it safe for teachers to do what they need to do? How can we make it safe for administrators to make the calls that they need to make? Especially if we have the highest administration in land saying we need to be focused on learning laws. It's not easy to focus on calculus five days a week when you got other things on your mind Y'all are human. And I think oftentimes, not only are, is it forgotten that young people are human, but I think it's forgotten that teachers and people who work in schools are human by the way that I see them being treated. Yeah, I think that brings up the complicated notion about accountability. And it came up especially during the pandemic because at the beginning, things were just in a scramble, obviously, with what's going to happen with schools, what precautions we're going to have to take when we come back in the fall. And I thought what was super interesting is that as much as I wanted to blame 
my teachers that this is why X, Y, and Z is going wrong. It was often just the effects of larger rules that were set by people and organizations that students don't really see or have contact with trickling down to the very lower levels of teachers, classrooms, and students. And that's where I think it gets really tricky. The pandemic definitely exposed that teachers, they work insanely hard to make sure their students are getting a good education. I remember on the 13th of March, 2020, that schools were going to be closed for the next two weeks tentatively. My teachers the next week hopped on trying to translate all their lesson plans to virtual learning and did that so quickly. And we're trying to make sure we never got off schedule and off track throughout the school year, they were always the ones that were kind of on top of everything. And it really seemed like it was the lack of transparency with the DOE that cost students a lot over remote learning and over blended learning. So I thought that's just like a super interesting point about who usually bears the brunt of the anger from people really has very little to do with it. I think that's an excellent point. And a lot of that is the impetus of the BIPOC Youth Mental Health Coalition is that we recognize that there are a lot of spaces that are devoid of youth input, but tell y'all what to do all day long. So as experts and as dedicated advocates from different organizations all over the nation, we recognize the power and the sway that we do have, the rooms that we can put our feet into. And that's why we want to hear directly from young people. What are you seeing in your schools or even in your community? What do you really need? And how can we be a voice to advocate for that? Or how can you even be a voice to advocate for that? And we get your foot into the door because these are, like you said, these are conversations where a lot of the the right people aren't in the room. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. I'm editor Irina Chowdhury signing off. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org slash podcasts for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded.